Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Well, the book of Hosea, I think as we're going through it, obviously is not a book, as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, it's not always a book that we're going to turn to at dark times in life, especially again like this passage before us, much like last week. And we can kind of push this to the side and, and say, well, it's really not that relevant because these are Israelites and, and we're the New Testament church. But we do have to listen to this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 22, gives a warning that the people of Israel actually provoke uh, the Lord's anger. And he gives this warning to the people in the Corinthian church. And he warns them from the Old Testament precedent that the Lord was angry with his people falling into idolatry and so his people can do the same thing as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Paul mentions that there's some in the church that by the disciplinary hand of God have died. Some have actually grown sick. Something that, again, we, we hear this and it should sort of make us contemplate life. We think of the seven churches in Revelation and the warning of the lampstand being removed. Hebrews 12 explicitly tells us that the Lord disciplines us. And we learn from Hebrews 10 verse 31 that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a sovereign God. So when we hear these things and we look at Hosea, we may wonder why continue in the Christian life. If God is so rigorous, if God is so severe that he just disciplines people who step out of line, why continue? Why follow him? Why struggle? Why pursue a redeemer? And so as we look at this, we have to take this discipline and these exhortations seriously. It's a reminder we can fall into these same sins. But the question I, I ask is very loaded. Because there is a reason to follow this God. And it's not that, that Israel's failing to, to see or to know God, uh, as God has just sort of not revealed himself. But they're not knowing God in a true and real way. And so what do we do with this again? How do we hear this disciplinary exhortation without being dismissive of it, but at the same time without it handicapping us where we're scared to come before the Lord. And so as we'll see this, we'll see the Lord saying discipline is coming upon his people, and we have discipline was promised. So it's something that the Lord has said would happen. And so let's begin with discipline is coming. Now one of the points of review for this text and, and for this section is to think about the children that Hosea has had. So remember the 
child Jezreel, Israel, scattered. Normally we think of this as a farmer having a joyous time scattering seed in the field. Uh, but scatter is also the language of being scattered amongst the nations, exiled from the land, kicked out of the presence of God. We think of lo rumalach, no mercy, right? I mean, this is a, a tragic name. It means God's no longer going to have mercy on his people. They're going to be handed over to what they, what they deserve. Lo ami, not my people. So when, when we set the stage of this, it's, it's obviously not something that's very exciting, very encouraging. But we have to understand the history is long coming, right? We talked about Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And by the way, I thought of a way to keep their names straight this week. Rehoboam, uh, we think of religious rites. So he's the king over Jerusalem, the religious right that he rules over Jerusalem. Jeroboam, jump ship. So you think of him going away. Uh, moving on, uh, setting up the golden calves. And that's an important history, isn't it? Because you, you have a king who goes north and wants to distract Israel from their God. So it's important when, when you read Hosea, and, and people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is so angry and so mean and so judgmental. You say, well, how many centuries has it been since Israel set up shrines to golden calves worshiping false gods. And so that history is essential. It's not like God is just flippant and all of a sudden he just, you know, loses his temper and, and goes off on his people. There's been generations, centuries of, of warning of the Lord interacting with his people and warning them of what's going to come. And so when the Lord writes this and he gives us these words through his prophet, there's another significant start here in Hebrew or Hosea 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priest. Again, this is telling us a recollection, telling us of, of a new uh, prophecy, which isn't necessarily so new. I mean, there's certainly things we've heard before, but it's Shema. And we think of Israel in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. What, what does the Lord say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Right? Shema Israel. And, and the call there is for Israel to understand they have one single God who is their priority. There's no other gods but the one God. And so Hosea 5 verse 1, when he's saying, hear this, O priests, it should make the priests resonate, contemplate, and think, who's our God? Is it the golden calves set up by Jeroboam? The, the one who has led us into idolatry? Is that our God? Or is it the true God of Israel? And so the Lord goes on, not only in terms of this hero, is, hero priest, but now he's adding to this concept. Because now he's assembling Israel together. Now there's some other echo here that's pretty significant in the Old Testament. We think of Genesis 49. And we think of Jacob there assembling his children. And as he calls his children, he says, Gather together, Israel, or my sons. And so Israel goes on and he talks about what's going to happen to his sons. And so right here, Israel should be thinking back nostalgically to, to their great patriarch, to their father, the one who has wrestled with God and learned that strength comes through weakness. And he learned this through a very hard lesson. 
But the reality is, this is what he's learned. He prophesies what's going to happen to his sons. Not all those prophecies are, are positive. But the reality is, here you have again the Lord calling Israel together, calling the sons of Israel together, not through a patriarch, but God himself through a prophet. And as he calls them together, what, what is he telling them? Well, he calls them and, and challenges them and says that here we have the house of the king. So it's not just the priests, not just Israel. Even the king uh, should be worried about uh, setting reforms in Israel and, and turning from their idolatrous practices. But he says you've been a snare at Mizpah. So the snare is, is the language of basically uh, using a trap to hunt birds. Well, and we, we know snares. I mean, this is basically a trap for an animal, but by and large, it's something that they would use to catch birds and, and to uh, use them to consume them and, and to find nourishment, right? It's part of their hunting practice. But it's a trap. It's sort of trickery. It's sort of sneaky. But Mizpah is a place where we think of this uh, reference where we can say, well, why, why is this so, so significant? Why is this called to our attention? Well, there's one reference to it in Judah where we have Samuel interacting, uh, which probably isn't the place it is called to our attention. The place that's most likely called to our attention, again, is in the northern kingdom. We think of Israel. But this city has a significance in itself uh, because this city goes back to Genesis 31:49, where it receives its name from Jacob and Laban. And if you're familiar with that history, uh, Jacob snuck away during the night because he was scared that Laban was going to out-Jacob him or out-supplant him or out-deceive him as Laban has done so well. And so Jacob sneaks away and Laban's outraged. Oh, why would you leave? Well, he leaves because you're kind of a scoundrel and you're sort of deceptive and you're not someone that's dealt squarely with your family. And so Jacob leaves so that he can get out of there safely. Well, there's a covenant that's made, and Laban basically says, you're God, because God came to Laban and said, you are not going to harm him, you are not going to harm his family. And Laban says, okay, I, I won't. So Laban calls God to their attention and says, your God is basically going to be a witness, and if you harm my daughters, harm my family, God will come against you. So you have God watching over, God being the one who's a witness. That's what Mizpah means. It's that witness. God's giving testimony, watching over, witnessing this event. And so when this is called to our attention, Hosea is saying, remember the significance of this city, that if there's any harm that comes to the, the children, any harm that comes in, in terms of this identity of the people going away, God will deal with it as a witness. So this is obviously an important place to call to our attention. Tabar is a mountain. We read of this in Judges 4 where Barak receives his instructions by Deborah and to carry out the Lord's will. So this is another place that stands as testimony where Israel has conducted holy war and been faithful to God. So you have a witness, place of holy war, where the Lord has shown his faithfulness. Two witnesses, two place marks called to our attention. And then we have now this, this issue of, of what's going on with this problem, that we have these revolters going into slaughter, so you basically have just absolute unrest and chaos and immorality going on. And so now the, the very reality is 
is you have Mizpah, watch, is going to end in Mishvat, judgment. So Mizpah, Mishvat is going to happen. The Lord sees and witnesses. The Lord's going to bring judgment upon this. This discipline that's coming against them is something that's coming directly from the hand of God. The exploitation that has taken place is not going to be left unanswered. And so the, the promise is right here. The priests, the kings who should have brought about reformation, the people of Israel who have been assembled around the great patriarch Jacob, who have heard of their fate, are hearing of another fate and should be warned that the Lord is the one who's going to deal with his people. They have not become or lived up to what they are supposed to be. They have not established the heaven on earth they were supposed to establish in Canaan. It has become something else. So now as we go on and we look at verses 3 through 7 as a unit, and, and we look at these verses as the Lord brings uh, this promise against him, that this discipline was promised. They, they shouldn't be shocked by this as the Lord continues to provide more proof. Because the Lord calls them out that they are those who basically have joyfully followed an immoral path. And, and they proudly did this. We went through it last week. Uh, we know it's pretty dark. We know it's pretty immoral. I don't think we need to revisit that. Uh, but the reality is there's just a lot of rampant public immorality going on in the midst of Israel that they're selling as worship. That's an important point. They are not a people without a religion. They are a people who have changed their religion. And as they have changed their religion, they have lost sight of their God. So again, it's not that Israel is without religion. It's a false religion that they are following. And so as the Lord speaks of them, we have here a problem. The Lord knows Ephraim. Now normally this is a great thing. You think of Jeremiah, the Lord knew him, formed him in the womb, and you think, wow, what a wonderful personal God that, that he knows us. But this is the other side of knowing, that the Lord knows what Ephraim has done. And so the Lord's saying, listen, Ephraim, you, you can try and say all you want. You can try and whitewash it. You can sell it as pious as you want to sell it. What you have done is immoral. And I know it. I've seen it. And then he says, and Israel's not hidden from me. So again, this is playing on what we've seen with the trees around the altar. Remember the Asherah trees and the different uh, trees that Israel would set up to use to make different gods. And so those trees, Israel would think, would hide them. But this is playing on that, that they thought that, that the trees would hide them. The most they do is shade them. It doesn't protect them from the Lord. And that's what the Lord wants Israel and Ephraim to know. I see what's going on. They're the ones who have sold out. Uh, they've given themselves over to the spirit of whoredom, calling to our attention 4 verse 12, which reminds us they have sold out their religion They've sold out their God. They think that they're doing this in the name of the Lord. But they've redefined the whole worship. They've redefined their deity. They've redefined everything of who they are. And so the Lord says Israel is defiled. Now this is a pretty tragic consequence. 
Because to say that Israel is defiled is putting them in the class of the unclean. And if you're familiar with, with the Levitical law, this means one cannot come into the presence of God. And, and so he's saying, Israel, you have compromised yourself in such a way. You're outside the camp. You're outside the land. So when the exile comes, do not turn to me and, and cry out and be angry. You've defiled yourself. I've given you my will. I've laid it out for you. You've defiled yourself. Don't cry out and play the victim here. This is where we, we get to what we talked about in the Canons of Dort in Head 5, where if we continue to dabble with our sin, the Lord may eventually hand us over to it and say, here you go, have at it, it's all yours. And he may temporarily withdraw his spirit from us, right? That's what's going on here. But the national people sending them out of the land, this is the warning. Don't be mad at me. You've defiled yourself. You knew the consequences. I've said it through Moses. You knew what was going on, and you still willingly pursued it. But as we go through this uh, somewhat quickly and look at what they're, what's going on, why is this so bad? Well, we have in verse 2 the warning they will be disciplined, right? That's the problem that's coming. The priest kings do not care. But now as we go on, we find that they are those who have compromised themselves. We find that they are those uh, where their deeds are not allowing them to permit to return to the Lord. Think, think about that. What, what does that fundamentally mean? The Lord's saying, you so want your sin that you don't desire me. And so there, there may be something where you're saying, well, may, maybe God's kind of important. But no, you keep trying to find that the satisfaction of that insatiable appetite for sin it has no end. It's never satisfied. It's, it's the worst gluttony that one could ever be given over to. And so they're saying, the, the Lord is saying, you're in the land, you've sold yourself out, you are so given over to a false religion, I can't leave you in this land anymore because you're never going to come back to me. But there's another problem we find that this greater problem that goes on, verse 5. Not only are they given over to false religion, but the pride of Israel. In other words, there's an arrogance that they stand here and they think, oh, we don't need the Lord. We got this all dialed. We're blessed. And the Lord's saying, but, but your arrogance, it's not going to help you. There, there's no thought about returning to one's first love as we have in 2 verse 7 with Gomer right? Where she says, well, maybe I should return to my first lover. That, that was safe. There's no thought of that with Israel. Arrogantly, Israel thinks they got it dialed. They love it. They're pursuing it. And so the Lord's saying, you, you don't even want me. Uh, you're, you're so given over to your sin, so proud of what you do that, that you don't even want me. Going on, not only are they arrogant, but we find that there's a big problem that they are those who are going to seek the Lord, verse 6, but the Lord's not going to be there. So think about that scenario right there. One's brought to a place like 2 verse 7, maybe I should find my first love, maybe I should find my first husband. And the Lord's saying, actually, I'm going to bring you to a place where you're going to recognize you are so broken by your sin and, and you're going to start to legitimately miss me. But I'm going to withdraw from you. 
I'm going to leave you in a place of wandering for a time. And I'm going to do this uh, so that you understand who you are and who I am. And so the Lord here, like what the canons of Dort warns, the Lord withdraws his spirit for a time, right? This is a scary thing where somebody continues to buck against the Lord, buck against the Lord, but it's not an individual like we would say under the covenant of grace. This is national Israel. So here's an example of the Lord taking his son Adam, placing him in the land, continually pursuing immorality and, and pursuing false worship and saying, but we want this. And the Lord finally is saying, okay, you got it. It's yours. Why don't you have those gods protect you? Oh, that's right. The shade trees don't hide you from me. I can see past their protection. They're not a shield and defender. And so eventually Israel realizes the futility of their ways and go, but we want to return to our first love. And the Lord says, too late. I've withdrawn from you. I'm going to leave you in a place of exile and leave you in a place of wilderness wandering. And I'm going to let you meander and feel lost for a little while. Why is the Lord doing this? Well, we might say, well, this is unfair and God's not being very nice to them. But we find in verse 7, they dealt faithlessly with the Lord. So the Lord's saying, listen, this isn't like overnight I just lose my cool and I'm done and I'm just flying off the handle and I'm finished. There have been generations of you acting faithlessly. How has the Lord been? He's been faithful, shows his steadfast love. He's like Hosea, the husband that goes and finds the, the unfaithful bride, takes her home, marries her again, buys her out of her trouble, pays the debt, takes her home, and she leaves him again. And the Lord says, you know what? You've acted faithlessly. You say, this is what you want. I'm giving you over to it. Pursue it. Love it. Notice then, as we started with the beginning with the children, Loami, that now they are bearing alien children. So not only is Israel defiled outside the camp, ceremonially unclean as we can find uh, under the Old Testament law, but they born alien children. Verse 7. This is a tragedy. When we think about the covenant of grace, we think about Israel and her covenant renewal. We talked about this, where the Lord rolls back their reproach. They're circumcised, reconsecrated to the Lord before going into the land. Israel and their children. Now we have the born alien children. This means that they have wandered so far from the covenantal promises of God that their children are, are no longer members of the Lord's covenant. It's like they're sojourners and aliens in the land. They have become like the people they were to make war with. And so the Lord's saying, this is what you become in your religion. You followed the false deities. You've given in to the Baals. You've followed all the false things you were supposed to exterminate. And you love them. And now your children are going to set up a tradition, not as a covenantal tradition, but as aliens, sojourners in this land who don't belong here, who don't understand its unique purpose. It's like a land that has been maintained, a land that is beautiful, comes under new ownership, and all of a sudden it's covered in weeds and mess, and it looks unkept, and it's disgusting. That's what Israel has become. 
The place where heaven was supposed to shine is a place that is overgrown with immorality and weeds and doesn't look like anything different than the forest that was there prior to this in its immoral state. But the Lord gives a time frame, and there's a lot of debate as to what this means. New moon, is this Israel's new moon festival? Is this a pagan new moon festival? Uh, Is this a particular new moon and where we're talking about the stages of the moon? Simply stated, the Lord's saying the next time you get together at your festival... And, and you're seeing this celebra- celebration. I think it's a pagan designation. In other words, they, they have so lost their tradition that the Lord's saying the next time you get together in your pagan celebration is when war is coming upon you and you're facing exile and you will be expelled from the land. And so when, when we hear this, and again, I don't know how much we want to go into all the new moon festival stuff, but anyway... When we hear this and we hear these verses, these are things that are no doubt tragic. And when we hear this, we can say, see, God is just flippant. He's angry. He's judgmental. Uh, He's a God that I don't know if I want to pursue him because he just, just, you know, does these cruel things to his people. The thing we, we have to understand when we put Hosea in the context Hosea plays the role of God. He pursues the unfaithful wife. She's not Israel. She's us. And the thing we have to come to grips with as the Lord's people, we severed the relationship with God. That's the thing. We we really have to come to grips with this. And what has Israel done? What is Israel showing us our propensity? Well, I like God, but, but I want something more tangible in this age. I, I want something more concrete. I, I want to go back to a, an Eden-like relationship where God walks in the midst of the holy sanctuary. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think all of us, if we're honest, that, that's what we want, don't we? I mean, we, 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 if, if we're in Christ, we have a longing for heaven, don't we? We want to sit at the feet of our Savior and hear our Lord's voice. At least I hope we do. I, I really do. That's, that's a good, honorable thing. But what do we do? We do what Israel did. We, we pursue all these other things in the place of God. And then we fail to recognize that God's the one who's been pursuing us the whole time. And so we can take Hosea 5, and someone can can take this text, put it in your face, and say, this is your God. He's angry, he's vindictive, he's impatient. But when you look at it and say, okay, let's put it in the context of Hosea in Scripture. And I started the sermon with the intention of making God sound as bad as he could possibly sound. And I ripped those verses out of context on purpose. Because if you just look at those verses and somebody rips them out of context, say, my goodness, this is a vindictive, angry, mean God who wants to worship him. When you really look at Hebrews 12, what does Hebrews 12 assure us? Yes, he warns us in chapter 10, you don't want to fall in the hands of a sovereign God. That is a dreadful thing. But Hebrews 12, he's saying he disciplines us as what? Children. 
And as the Lord is disciplining us, well, what is he doing? Well, individually, he's reminding us that he ultimately wants us to come back. Hebrews grants. He concedes, verse 11, discipline's not enjoyable. I mean, God in his providence, he may do it through the church, as we mentioned when we went through Hebrews. He, he might do it in his providence where there's just things we, we really want, and they may be honorable things, but the Lord doesn't allow them to happen at their particular time. And yet, why is the Lord doing that? Because he's teaching us to rely on him. And in Hebrews 12, it goes on to assure us, what, what is the fruit of it? It yields the fruit of righteousness. So when the Lord is ripping Israel out of the land as a national people, it's certainly teaching us, we're not going to bring in heaven. We're, we're not. We, we can't do it. Only Christ can do that. And Christ has done that and secured it. It also teaches us that we are those who are so prone to, to these whims of ideas that can send us into places where we ought not to go. And so when the Lord's ripping Israel out of the land, is he doing it because he hates his people? No, you've got to hear those subtle echoes. It's that intimate moment of Jacob before his sons when he's dying on his deathbed prophesying what God's going to do. That's what the Lord is doing in Hosea 5. He's saying, listen, you can't handle the land. If, if, if I leave you in this place, you're going to go so far, you will never seek me. But if I take you in the wilderness, right? And we've talked about the wilderness being a place of testing, but it's also a place of reshaping, reforming. And the Lord's saying, if I basically take all these blessings from you and reshape you and reform you in a time of testing, in, in, in a time of, of sort of pushing you, shaping you, you're going to come back. And as you come back, you will come back with a greater passion and a greater love for who I am. And so, yes, Israel functions as a type. Yes, there are warnings in, in Revelation about the lampstand of the church being removed. But why? What, what is the focus? What, what is the, the standard? When we lose sight of our Redeemer, when we lose sight of Christ, when we fail to understand our need for Christ, the Lord has a way of taking us, reshaping us, remolding us. And I know I've shared this before, and I won't go into details, but I always go back to my Hebrew professor who, who said, when the Lord does these things to you, this discipline, by his providence, just outside the context of the church, normally, yes, the Lord works in the context of the church. But when he has certain things that frustrate you, he said, you, you know when the hand of God is on you. And he said, you come to a place where you are kind of like Job. You're bitter, you're angry, you're bucking against it. You're, you're bragging about your own righteous deeds and your own self-righteousness. And he said, eventually you, you come to a place of peace where you say, no, God is reprioritizing my life. And that's what we have to see here. The ultimate comfort we, we've got to take from this you know, last week, I, I don't want to relive that. I mean, that, that was just immoral and disgusting what Israel has fallen into. But you look at how far his people have fallen. And God is still at work on them. He hasn't left them. So there's another point of hope we, we have to take from this. That no matter how far 
we perceive someone has fallen, no matter how much someone has pushed against and tested the boundaries of the grace of God and been handed over to sin, we see that the boundaries can never go too far. That God can still reach his people and bring them back. Work in their lives and reshape them. We don't know why the Lord does what he does. We don't know why the Lord allows certain people to go through certain things. But something we cannot lose sight of. And if somebody takes these texts and puts them in your face and says, Your God's an angry God. We need to bring these things out. So we'll, let's talk about Jacob. Jacob being with his children. Let's talk about why the Lord is sending Israel out of the land and sending another nation. Because they can't handle the land. He's reshaping them, remolding them, showing them they need Christ. And what a place we are in covenant history when we bow our knee before our Redeemer. Yes, we're waiting for him to come again. But unlike Israel, we've seen the battle plan. He's come. He's lived a perfect life. He suffered as a perfect suffering servant. He's been faithful to his father against all circumstances. He was handed over to death in a kangaroo court, faced the exile of hell, and emerged triumphant in his resurrection. Let us not get to a place in our mindset when we ask this question of why is God disciplining his people? How, how do we take this discipline seriously without discounting it? We take it seriously in how Hebrews reminds us under the covenant of grace. We are his children. We are his sons. And the Lord wants us to have good things, absolutely. Read the Lord's Prayer. Hear how God cares for his people. But the Lord wants us to remember who's a giver of all good things. Let us not, then, push the boundaries of God's grace. Let us not try and see how much we can push outside of God's boundaries. Because God might give us what we want. And we don't want that. We find that with Israel. We don't want that. We don't want to be in a place where we're broken, we're in the wilderness, a nation comes against us, and we're on our knees saying, Lord, where are you? And the Lord hides his face. That's the prophecy. That's the dark place of what he's talking about bringing Israel. But the assurance is, as we bow our knee before our Savior, as we pursue our Redeemer, as we seek first his kingdom as we are exhorted in terms of our gratitude, that pursuit is not something that's empty. That is a worthwhile pursuit. What does the Lord desire? Heard from Psalm 51, a broken heart, a humble heart, as Micah reminds us, wanting to pursue him, wanting to pursue our Lord. So let us never lose sight of our gracious Redeemer. Let us never, as James exhorts us, lose sight to the power of prayer, no matter how far gone we may think someone is, what do we learn from Hosea? Israel is off the rails. I mean, they are sliding down the hill. They are full speed ahead in their sin. And yet the Lord still sees them and has his hand on them. Let us not then minimize the significance of prayer, the significance of God's redemptive power. And let us then continue to pursue our Redeemer, 
knowing that life is only found in him. Let us walk with humble hearts before our Savior, our Redeemer, knowing that we love because he has first loved us, knowing that our life is only secured because he has laid his life down, securing our life. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.